Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday, Ontario announced the end of mask mandates on March 21st, but is it too early? Dr. Peter Uni thinks so, and he'll join us to talk about that. We in Canada may not be on the front lines, but the war in Ukraine is still testing our psychological limits, especially as we're still in the midst of the pandemic. We'll get some tips on how to manage our anxieties with Dr. Marissa Young, Associate Professor and Acting Director of the McMaster University Institute of Health Equity. And Ontario Liberals' new logo is not popular, even among Ontario Liberals. Did they make a mistake? We'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The provincial government yesterday uh, announced that uh, they would be lifting the mask mandate uh, effective essentially March 21st. Uh, For most of us, there will still be some restrictions. And then toward the end of April, they say there'll be a, a, a lifting of just about all of the masking restrictions. Uh, on the surface, that sounds like great news, doesn't it? But there are an awful lot of people that have some serious concerns about this. And I have some trepidation about this, too. Uh, joining us to talk about the decision and uh, implications, I was so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni. Dr. Uni is the director of Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, it's a pleasure to have you back on the program. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, right to the core question here, if I could, Doctor. Uh, I, I don't think there's anybody that, that want, you know, wants to see this continue. We all, we're all anxious to get rid of masks and mandates and all this other <clears throat> stuff. But is this the right time? Well, first question to you, are we really all that anxious? You know, the, I think we, we need to be careful here to distinguish between what people say in polls and what's happening among decision makers? No, it's it's like what we're seeing, you know, in the Western world right now is moves that perhaps happen in the minds of decision makers, but people, depending on where you are, are you know mixed in their emotions how far this needs to go right now and how rushed we need to do that. I think that's a first important distinction to be made. I hear statements like, okay, poor children with masks. My children and most children I see, they don't really worry about masks. You know, it's a bit like robber and uh, policeman, or how do you call that in English for some of them? So we just need to be careful uh, that we don't take everything for granted that is being communicated right now well i know i'll paraphrase because i i think the comment you're referring to is from the premier himself yesterday uh that said those poor kids we got to get those masks off of them that doesn't sound like a science-based argument to me uh, doctor uh in light of the fact that you know children under five years old are still ineligible to be vaccinated Uh, there's another omicron sub variant called ba.2 uh that's out there someplace and, and i guess that should be a concern it just doesn't seem to me that there's much science here to support this decision Oh, look, it depends on how how you uh, approach it, of course. What we can say is, and that's really good news, is that we tolerated the reopening steps that we did, but also because people take it slow, which is really part of the equation here. So, uh, you know, we went through school reopening, then January 31st and February 17th. We uh, stayed stable with our test positivity, uh, you know, in, in February, and we also stayed stable in the wastewater concentration of uh, viral genes. That's all good news. 
But now we have had the 31st, uh, sorry, the, uh, the 1st of March uh, reopening step. And it's simply too early to tell where this will go with that one. And after that, now we're already talking without having an idea about whether we remain stable or not. We're talking about, uh, you know, uh, lifting the mask mandate. That's the challenge. And what, I, what gives me pause, basically, is, you know, my original home country, Switzerland, they did exactly that. They lifted the mask mandate. Just to give you a hunch, you know, their diagnosed cases are probably about 50% of the cases of infection that happen, and they have a size of 8.6 million. So, you know, about 60% of our population size. Um, they were, I'm just looking at the stats right now, on the 22nd of February, they were at a mean of 15,000 cases of COVID diagnosed per day, then they lifted masks. Now they're at a mean of 25,000 cases per day. Okay. Uh, this gives me pause. And, you know, you could say, of course, the Swiss, you know, messed the vaccine rollout up and you're completely right with this argument. But then I tell you, but they've had a lot more infections and a lot more deaths, you know, also, which is sad, you know, for me to say as a Swiss. But this means they have a lot of immunity built through infection. So, where do we go? I hope we will be okay because we were really successful with our vaccine rollout, etc. But I would just ask people to A, take it slow, and B, if they haven't received the third dose, to really get the third dose. Just from your comments yesterday as well, Doctor, I saw a couple of the uh, television interviews you were doing. Uh, you're not simply saying, hey, stop, stop, stop. You're basically saying, give us a couple more weeks to collect more data, which seems to me a reasonable yes. request. Yeah, I think that's the point, you know, right now we have really an opportunity, we, we built, you know, just a new navigational tool, that's the wastewater, we have test positivity in addition, just to, you know, have a little bit more time to accumulate a bit more data and see where we're going. And it could well be that it works out. It's just that I see some anomalies, you know, what happens in Denmark, not that straightforward, what happens in the UK, as I said, my home country, Switzerland, etc. It's just not that clear whether we're just already in the right space here. We just need a bit more of good weather and uh, people outdoors. This will, of course, help us too. And right now, what we just would like to achieve, you know, that we have a current a steady flow of infections, but we don't want to have, you know, a dramatic increase. I, I, you brought the weather up, and I think that's very germane. I think we found that out with a couple of the other waves that we've gone through. And I know, uh, speaking of some of the comments, one of your colleagues, Dr. Gerald Evans, uh, talked about this too uh, yesterday and said you know, he was surprised. He thinks it's a little too early too. Uh, but usually something like this, which is a pretty bold step to say, okay, you know, we're not going to need masks anymore, is done when the weather is nice and we're going to be outdoors a lot more than we are now. It's still winter. I know chilly. Uh, it's going to snow again again this weekend in southern Ontario. Uh, it, it just seems to me as if maybe, you know, we're jumping the gun just a little bit here. It could, it could be the case, and perhaps it's not. We will find out. That's the point. You know, I was actually quite surprised how well we did during the last reopening steps, but which just means, A, the uh, vaccine rollout with the third doses worked tremendously well again, and even though we only made it only in inverted commas to 7 million, I would have wished for 8 million already. Um, it worked well in combination with infections. And remember, we talked about that before, I guess. Uh, we probably right now have had about 3.5 to 4.5 million people in Ontario who infected themselves with Omicron. Means this uh, adds to the short-term protection and to the wall of immunity. This all helps. But 
but you know how much can we aff afford now this is always a balance of power between immunity and contacts and you know uh, contact that was okay before with a mask might not be that low risk anymore once the mask is lifted and a couple of other things here too. Yours, yours is not the only uh, organization. Uh, the, the science table is, uh, that's raising some concerns here, as you know, Doctor. The Children's Health Coalition, which is made up of a number of uh, organizations, including Sick Kids in Toronto and McMaster Children's Hospital here, uh, pretty much echoing what you've said that it's not the right time to do this, uh, especially in school settings. As you know, since they're focusing on children, suggesting uh, that wait until it's, uh, there's more data and wait until, of course, as you say, there's milder weather, and we're not there yet. Uh, a couple of the teachers' federations are suggesting the same thing, that they're, they're concerned about safety in the classroom as well. There's always going to be a debate, I guess, Doctor, about you know, the, the impact of the pandemic on children. Uh, but just the same, there's a number of them that are, quite frankly, going to be vulnerable if, if there is going to be an uptick. And you've just mentioned that the, there could well be another uptick in, in, in number of cases. Uh, the projections I've seen indicate that there's going to be one probably sometime this spring, regardless of whether or not we're wearing masks, simply because of the presence of the, the BA.2 here. We don't know. We know. Uh, so the first, perhaps starting with BA.2, um, it is indeed more transmissible. And um, uh, this could result in some challenges, but what is important is immunity holds. We know that. And, you know, vaccine-induced uh, immunity holds too, the way we saw it for Omicron. So you need your third dose. And uh, if you have been infected with Omicron, the original one, uh, again, you have a lower risk of getting reinfected with BA2. That's all, again, good news. And it's not more severe. This all will help. It also will help, of course, you know, that we have built up this wall of immunity, as I referred to before. And this means even if we see an uptick of cases, the slope will be less steep than what we've seen uh, in, uh, in mid-December, for example. All of that is still good news. I would hope, you know, especially if we had, you know, stayed with our masks a bit longer, that the BA2 kicking in will wait a bit longer. It hasn't taken over yet, which is a surprise, actually. And uh, that the weather really will be to our help. And now we will just need to see. It could well be that two weeks from now we will see, oh, we continue to be stable okay let's get ready for this next reopening step then there's the other part you know when you talk about kids which is of course quebec um has spearheaded now you know the, the and quebec is much in the same shoes or similar shoes than we are has spearheaded you know lifting masks in schools meaning we would have an example there to tell us how bumpy the road is that we would face if we do the same now we made the decision already to lift school mandate uh, school mask mandates and uh, means we can't benefit from the quebec experience in the same way unless we're saying if things start to look uh, off you know in a few weeks or so we're still ready to revert i don't think this will happen to be honest well we hope it doesn't either but even in his comments yesterday dr moore uh suggested that that is a possibility not a probability but a possibility uh that you know if the numbers do spike again we may be asked to wear our masks again and in this uh roller coaster of emotions that we've gone through in the pandemic to, to you know issue another mandate a couple of weeks down the road because the numbers are go up uh, is, is not going to go well, I guess, for people's uh, psychological impacts on the site now. Do, uh, and, and that's got to be a factor, too. Look, we perhaps as a province developed a bit of a different culture than other places, which might be good news. Um, 
I would expect that not that many people will just say, okay, now everything is hunky-dory and I just uh, stop wearing masks entirely. It might be a much more organic transition. We will see how this goes. So perhaps all of that, you know, will be much, uh, you know, less intense than, you know, how it looks perhaps right now. And uh, let's see. I mean, before, before um, this is actually happening around March 20th, even though we also have the March break, which makes things a bit more wonky, we probably have a bit of an idea how stable we are. And then we'll take it from there and see how it's going. And a number of people sharing this trepidation. I mean, we just did a poll in the Hamilton radio station at CHML yesterday on an online poll. You know, will you take the mask off after March 21st or we continue to wear it? 61%, I believe it was, said they're going to keep the mask on. Uh, so uh, yeah. we're, we're wary. I think we're aware of just, you know, what we're dealing with here. And there's a, a concern. And, and I, I think that's good news that we're being cautious about that. Even if, you know, the government may be jumping the gun just a little bit, it seems as if the general population is on to the fact that, look, we got to take this slowly. Yeah, look, it's really interesting. There seem, and this seems to be just a sociological phenomenon. I'm not a sociologist, but what I see is that, you know, this antsiness, this is even an English word, you know, people being antsy uh, yeah. is more, you know, uh, prevalent among uh, elected decision makers than among the rest of us, it seems, you know, uh, what you see in the US, what you see in Denmark, etc. Are people really that keen? And, you know, for most of us, not for all, if somebody is hard of hearing or, you know, has a language disability, etc. It's different. Uh, masks are a difficulty for them. But for most of us, masks are a very small price to pay to keep things a little bit under control, especially, you know, if uh, spring is around the corner and things will get much better very soon. I wanted to ask you quickly, I've got you, doctor. I know you're busy, but just a, a, another question here. Uh, came across a story yesterday. Uh, if, uh, this is a, an article that was published, a study that was published in a journal called Nature. Uh, that indicates that even mild cases of COVID-19 could cause what they call brain-related abnormalities, such as yes. shrinkage of certain parts of the brain. Is, uh, have you heard about this? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the co-authors is a close colleague of mine from Oxford, actually, who, uh, who was one of those who had the idea to repurpose funding to do exactly this study. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the point really is what people just need to understand. First of all, we don't know how long COVID actually will play out for Omicron, especially if you're fully vaccinated. I would hope that the risk of long COVID is less, but we don't know how much less now. And what we need to be aware of is, you know, for all those out there who still say, oh, it's just a flu. I mean, this is simply not true. Uh, this virus also has an affinity for the brain. We don't know exactly what's happening there, but we see indeed several brain areas. And it's not just the area where you smell, but it's also surrounding areas that actually uh, are affected. And you basically just see a decrease in brain matter, which may just be temporary. We don't know that yet because there was only you know, one cross-section, one neuroimaging round done after people have, have had COVID and then in comparison with controls. But what we basically see is there is brain areas affected. And we also see, you know, that relatively crude test of mental capacity also show that people um, who have had COVID on average slow down a bit. And again, they might recover. We don't know yet what this means in reality. But the point really is um, 
it's good to be concerned mainly about health systems capacity with hospitalization, ICU admission, etc. But if you think about everything else, there's really also long COVID. And, uh, you know, you have a genuine interest to get your three doses of a vaccine, even if you have, have Omicron relatively recently, to just optimize your immune response and decrease your risk of long COVID, including potentially, you know, that uh, long COVID also finds its way to, to uh, your brain. That was one of the things that concerned me personally most you know in my role i need my brain to work properly i can't be cloudy and i of course i can't prove to you that you know what they saw in the neuroimages actually would be directly associated with the cloudiness but there's some indirect you know evidence that there's some correlation so when you think about all of that it just makes sense that we don't jump the gun as you said before absolutely uh, and as always doctor great to get your perspective on this thank you so much for spending some time with us again this morning really appreciate it Thanks a lot for having me again. Take care. Dr. Peter Uni, the director of the Ontario Science Table and, of course, a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Tell you what, uh, since there's so much back and forth on this, uh, we're going to spend some time with you on the phones uh, and on email uh, with your thoughts. And the question I'm going to pose to you is quite simple. Is this the right call uh, to, to lift the mask mandate as of March 21st, essentially? Will you keep wearing a mask or are you going to throw it off and say, good riddance? Uh, we'll open the lines up. we got a news update coming up and a couple of other things we have to do to get some business out of the way. But then I want to hear from you. We're going to put you on the spot and give you the platform to talk to us about how you feel about the government's decision that was announced yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about you and me and everybody who's been impacted by the goings on over the last, well, two and a half years, I guess it's getting into now. Uh, the pandemic, the shutdowns, uh, the concern we've had for our own personal safety, for our loved ones. Uh, and that's not over, as we just talked about in the last hour, even though the government thinks they're going to lift the mandate uh, for masking anyway. Uh, there's still that threat of COVID and the impact it could have. Uh, and now, of course, we're dealing with something altogether different. We're watching a war every day on television. We're watching the Russians invade Ukraine. We're watching people dying. We're watching children's hospitals and maternity wards getting bombed. I mean, as, as Deputy Premier Chris, Premier, Prime Minister Christy Freeland mentioned yesterday, it's it's heart-wrenching. And, and at some point, you have to turn away and say, I can't watch this anymore. I've seen news anchors from different networks actually tearing up as they're hearing some of the stories of the, of the refugees. People are trying to run for their lives and save their children. It's got to have an impact on you. And how do you deal with something like this? Well, our next guest has some ideas. There's a, an op-ed piece that was written, I think, addresses this subject. And uh, I was so glad that uh, that she could join us to talk about uh, that. Dr. Marissa Young is an associate professor and acting director of the McMaster University Institute of Health Equity and joins us here on the program to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. First of all, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to join the conversation. Well, I read the piece that, that you wrote, and it, it, like I say, it, I think it outlines an awful lot of what we're all going through. And I, I guess we could probably add to the stress and strain of all of this, Professor, is uh, for some reason, we in North America try to suppress our feelings of anger and angst and frustration and everything a lot of the time, which probably only makes it worse, doesn't it? Absolutely, right. And that's one of the things that I think we've been coping with for the past two years, two and a half years of the pandemic, where we're just sort of just getting by and we're trying to find the strength psychologically to deal with that with the hopes that eventually it will return to some new normalcy. 
And of course, as we saw signs of that uh, or are seeing signs of it, we are now being hit with a number of other circumstances and sort of what I would call ambient stressors in this environment. And that not only includes, you know, the recent occupations in Ottawa and across the country, but also now to this very, you know, un unfortunate travesty types of circumstances that we see uh, across the world. Well, I'll talk about the Ukraine because I want to cover everything off, including the pandemic, because we're not over that yet either, and especially the psychological impacts of that. Uh, but I remember as a kid growing up and watching highlights, or I shouldn't say highlights, but I mean, uh, news reports of the Vietnam War. Uh, and of course, they, there was no satellite TV back in those early days. So, I mean, you know, they'd send something off and a day or two later, you'd see it. And it was horrifying uh, to actually see this. We're seeing it in real time now. Uh, you know, you turn on right now, you can turn on one of the news networks and there are pictures of refugees running across the border and, and of, of schools and hospitals being bombed. And, and, and the, the stories that we're hearing in situations like this, we're inundated with this. Uh, we don't want to turn it off because we're compassionate people. We want to find out what we can do and, and what they're going through. But how do you cope with this kind of trauma? And I'm, I'm not, by the way, trying to compare, you know, apples to apples and saying, boy, the trauma we're feeling is is, is as bad as what have the people in Ukraine right now. Of course it's not. Uh, mm -hmm. But we want to do something about this. And we, we, like I say, everybody I've talked to is just beside themselves. And when, when they watch the pictures here and said, this is an actual war and it's happening right now. Right, right. Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head. We're sort of caught between these two spots of being good citizens, being informed, wanting to make sure that we're, you know, involved in whatever capacity we can be of the events uh, that we're watching. But at the same time, the psychological toll it's taking on us is devastating. And as you mentioned at the top of this discussion, you know, there are there are broadcasters breaking down, you know, and watching and reporting on these news. And I know too, even our colleagues who specialize in this particular area are having a lot of difficulties as well. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, in comparison to what you mentioned in in history where we've almost had kind of a what would be called like a hyper reality where we can watch things through tv but not so much in real time now that we do have this in real time it really does impact us as though it is happening right next door and i think that's something to be notable and be very conscious of and and knowing when to turn it off at what point is it that we've had you know, enough, I guess, exposure to this type of very devastating images and information, and that we have to take a moment and step back and think about, okay, how can we cope psychologically to bring ourselves back to a standard where we can take care of ourselves, we can take care of those around us. Uh, because I think we're very fragile psychologically right now, after coming out of the two year pandemic. And so this is a lot. And even though we do want to continue watching and want to stay informed, as I mentioned, uh, there is a point at which we have to turn off the television or turn to, uh, turn off the, I guess, doom scrolling at times. Yeah, I, that you, that's a phrase that really jumped out at me as I was reading your piece, doom scrolling. Uh, which may sound like a new phenomenon. In other words, it's it's sort of like when you see, I guess, an accident on the highway. You can't turn away. You know you're not supposed to stare at it, uh, but you can't turn away because it's it's of the magnitude of it. Right. And I think, you know, that's a great analogy because we know what happens in traffic when there is something of that phantom traffic where everyone's just slowing down to look at the accident and everything starts to, you know, take a little bit longer and we aren't able to, you know, get to the destination or where we want to go as quickly as possible. And I would say this is kind of the same thing where 
we're all sort of, if you want to use that analogy, we're all sort of slowing down because we're all concentrating so much on this. And what that means personally for us to sort of take a step back and try to get back to, you know, a best version of ourselves that hopefully did exist prior to the pandemic. It's very difficult when we're being bombarded with this type of news. And the doom scrolling, absolutely, I think, is something that's become uh uh, more more of a habit at this point where you're constantly looking at more and more clicks and more and more news and more and more images, right? And very disturbing images. Um, and one of the things that we now know too is how, how, you know, real some of these images are compared to others. And so, you know, having to work through that, that takes a lot of mental energy, uh, some of which I would say better suited for us to concentrate on ourselves and self-care to get back to our best selves. So how do we deal with something like this on an individual basis, though, Professor? I mean, you know, if 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 I'm physically exhausted, uh, you know, okay, the common sense tells me, okay, well, you got to sit down for a while, or relax, or maybe even lay down, try to have a nap, do something. In other words, your body has to rejuvenate. Uh, mentally, how do you ha- how do you handle something like that? Because it, it's not as simple as as even the physical element. Because if you're stressed and you've got a million things on your mind, you can't relax when you're laying down. Right. Yeah. And that's this is the problem and why I think we too need to look at some of the organizations and institutions with which we engage daily to kind of help. Uh, So it's not just this focus on the individual to care for themselves. So the sociological perspective very much would be that we we need to consider the context and the circumstances individuals find themselves in. Um, And I I do want to thank your like in mental health and some of the strain we've been under to if we had, for example, broken an arm or a leg. Um, there wouldn't be necessarily a quick turnaround where we could use those limbs again uh, and just presume that, you know, now that things have changed slightly, we're at our full capacity. And instead, there would be some level of rehabilitation. And that's what we need right now to really think about is to come together in terms of that social support to help each individual sort of rehabilitate in that way and bring people back to, again, as I mentioned, sort of their, their stronger psychological selves. Um, and some of the, the points I make in the piece that was published to get there is really concentrating on what is seen to be the, the greatest psychological uh, resource, um, a sense of control over one's circumstances. And right now, that's really been hit the hardest, I think, over the past two years, where there's been uncertainty and precarity around what's happening in the world uh, in terms of the pandemic to the point where we didn't even know, uh, you know, if we could trust our neighbor when going out of our homes uh, in terms of the risks that might be presented to us. And now too, with having all of the travesty uh, across the world in terms of the war in Ukraine and not having really an ability to control those circumstances in any way, albeit there are smaller things we can do here from home. Uh, But I think that's where we really wanna kind of step back and focus on, okay, what can I control in my day-to-day life and what can I focus on? And, And to sort of calm that worry about things that we do not have control over this is very similar to uh that type of instrumentalism that people would want to exhibit is is this like grieving and even though we may not have relatives we may not have a a tie to ukraine i mean we're humanitarian so we are social beings Uh, we don't like to see suffering especially of this magnitude uh, and, and on top of it, as you mentioned in the piece, all the other things that we're dealing with, you know, economic insecurity right now because of COVID, you know, do I have a job? How long is that going to happen? Uh, if you're a small business owner, you're probably up to your ears in debt right now. How am I going to pay all this off? Uh, it, when you get to that point, sometimes it's, 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 
not like a death necessarily, but it's like somebody is, it's just been, something's been taken away from us. The people I've talked to seem to have this empty feeling inside them these days. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I, I would liken it to definitely a a process of mourning. Um, And so uh, a level of grief for, for certain. And we know that, you know, mourning can manifest into melancholy if not treated well. And so we want to ensure that it doesn't get to that point because we already, you know, I think have seen some of the um, unfortunate behaviors exhibited from individuals from COVID. And so I know uh, I, I was fortunate to speak with John Wells from the Hamilton Spectator about this notion of COVID rage and how people are mm-hmm. sort of turning on one another. Um, and, and we just have to sort of think about how we can come together as a society and begin to support this process and support this mourning process, as you say, uh, that we definitely need to sort of getting back to the society we used to we used to know. And I, I do think, um, albeit the the consequences and the circumstances in Ukraine are absolutely awful, but you do see signs now of people coming together in support during crisis um, in even in North America. And I know that, you know, this was spoken of in the U S too, when Biden gave his talk uh, about having to um, uh, you know, the rising prices of gas, which we know we're going to see here. Uh, but the, I guess, circumstances or I, the willingness for us to, uh, you know, be able to sort of bring that support and come together again as a community in times of crisis like this. I suppose in times like this, and you know, when everything just seems to be piling on, is what the one expression that I heard from a friend of mine. Uh, we have to concern ourselves about self-medication, don't we? Because we know that even during the pandemic, uh, you know, alcohol use and things of this nature was, you know, skyrocketing in, in use. Uh, and, and that's something we really have to, I guess, watch ourselves. And there's maybe a little self-policing there, but we have to make sure that, you know, I, I think, as you mentioned in the piece, dialogue and, 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 you know, leaning on people and that, you know, relying on that social element uh, as opposed to simply saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to self-medicate and that's going to get me over this. It doesn't really. It only makes mm-hmm. the situation worse. You're absolutely right. And and we talk oftentimes about positive versus negative coping mechanisms and in the sense of dealing with these mental health stressors. And it's unfortunate if, you know, pulling in or towards that negative coping mechanism like self-medicating and how quickly it can become a habit that even then when the situation around oneself becomes better, uh, you're still subjected to that type of negative coping mechanism because that's been socialized through. And so I I would say, you know, the two positive resources, again, as I know um, from my research when it comes to dealing with mental health and particularly this type of what we would call kind of chronic stress, uh, where it's sort of insidious and there's no specific and or or start point uh it's very important to maintain like i said that sense of control over that which you can um and then also reach out to other social support is very key in helping get through uh these circumstances and that's why i think you know during the pandemic the level of isolation and loneliness that a lot of people did feel and those who unfortunately could not be with family um uh, because of the circumstances, um, you know, lost a lot of those resources. And so I think it's important that we uh, reinvest and re-engage with those types of, of strong resources to get through this, what seems like another uh, very unfortunate ambient type of stressful context. I got about a minute left, but I got to ask you this. I just got an email from one of our listeners enjoying our conversation. Uh, how important is it for parents to talk to their kids in times like this? I mean, they're they're seeing this stuff too. And trying to process it and and you know th- 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 is it necessary and, and and important to have a dialogue 
Uh, yeah. So first, I just want to say I, I'm not specifically uh, uh, specialized in working with children, but I would sure, say okay. absolutely. I would suggest that it is important to have that dialogue because otherwise children might not understand what is going on and the ways in which they interpret that uh, and seeing what they see on TV and not knowing if it is in fact real or not. It's, it's very important, I think, to talk to children about this. And then also for them to recognize that, um, you know, that level of grief that they may feel um, is is normal and natural uh, and work with them on ways to kind of help deal and work and get through that too. You can uh, just Google it. It's brighterworld.mcmaster.ca dash articles, watchdog, watching the war, hashtag. Uh, Interesting stuff. Uh, Thank you so much, first of all, for for writing the piece. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Very important conversation. I appreciate it, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Marissa Young, Associate Professor and Acting Director of the McMaster University Institute of Health Equity. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a provincial election coming up. But the campaign is, well, it's kind of started already. If you've seen some of the TV ads, uh, what a great province we are, what, you know, this government's doing this, yada, yada, yada. And they, they all do that when they get election fever. And uh, it's going to be the first week of June, although the campaign hasn't officially started. But a big part of that is the voters have to understand who the people are, not just the personalities, but the party. It's called branding in the in the advertising world. You know, you have to make sure they understand and acknowledge your brand. And it's got to be eye-catching. There's an, uh, an awful lot of public relations in politics, let's face it, uh, to try to swing people over to, uh, to your particular party uh, when an election comes up, now, especially uh, when, when you're not in government and when you're one of the parties that's challenging and would like to take over government. Uh, you got to have a big push. There's got to be an awful lot of work that goes into things like logos and, and messaging, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Ontario Liberals uh, apparently have done that. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, it's getting, shall we say, some mixed reaction, a lot of it negative. A lot of the negative reaction they're getting are from Liberals themselves that are saying, what is this? Uh, they've changed the logo. And uh, not too many people have seemed to be impressed with this. And, you know, you may think, well, so what? Well, it's, it's a big deal because... Things like this do have an impact on, on we, the public. Uh, we're, we're consumers. In this particular case, we're consuming politics, not cornflakes. But, you know, branding and, and messaging is just as important, if not more so, in that particular case. So uh, did they get it right? And, and you know, is is this a, a misstep for a political party that's trying to make their way out of the wilderness? Uh, I want to bring uh, Dr. Joanne McLeish, McNeish rather, into the uh, conversation. Uh, Dr. McNeish is an associate professor of marketing at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much today. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. And I love the intro because you got it exactly right. Branding is all about communicating who you are as a company or, in this case, a political party. Now, I want to ask you a question. Sure. Um, did, did that help you understand who the new Liberals are, the new Ontario Liberals are? No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for for those who have not seen it, we should explain, I guess, uh, oh, Professor. Yes, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the old, uh, for lack of a better, it, it was a big L, and I think it had a little maple leaf on it or something, but it was a brand, and you could say, oh, yeah, that's the Liberal Party. This is a circle, a red circle with a white background that just says Liberal in red letters. Uh, that's it. Uh, right. You know, when I, when I see those big double M's uh, when I'm driving down the street, I know that's McDonald's, okay, because, uh, you know, it's it's all about branding and, and understanding and, and recognizing brands. Uh, this doesn't grab me, and I don't think it's going to grab too many people. You're absolutely right. So the previous one was actually quite square, solid, 
and it had a great red color. Now, one of those things, this may be a, a sort of facsimile, but you're absolutely, it's a red circle with the word inside. So the problem with using a red circle is it makes us quickly call to mind things like a stop sign, a, uh, a negative. So when I'm marking my students' exams, when I used to mark on paper, I used a red pen and put a big circle when it was all wrong. Oh, I saw so, a lot of those in my day. Yeah, I know. Oh, I can't, no, don't <laughs> tell me that. Can't believe that. So a couple of things. So what I did is I went to their website to say, well, you know what? We're going to see lots of communication about this because the election's coming up in a few months, and you don't typically launch a new logo um, or communicate, start to communicate about a new logo unless you've got everything ready to go. Well, there's no swag. There's no downloadable images, so they don't seem to be too ready for this. So is this, first of all, just before we get into what it might communicate, is this trying to get us talking about the Liberal Party in sort of a desperate attempt to have a conversation about the Liberals and their policies? Second thing I observed when I jumped to the, the, the homepage of their websites, which comes up with fundraising, is the key messages help us defeat Doug Ford. And then I said to myself, well, hang on. Is this all about making the Liberals the party that can stop Doug Ford. So this might be consistent with that message. The problem is, in branding and marketing, when you're number two brand, it can be very risky to compare yourself to the first place brand because what they've just done is position Doug Ford as first place and then second place. So now let's go back and look at that logo. So maybe they really do want to make it make us think about a stop sign, and they're the group that's going to stop the big giant truck of Doug Ford from driving through and taking the election. But they that may be a position of weakness instead of the position of strength that they should be coming from. And they told us in, in some of the communication is this is all about unity and solidarity. A circle, that's, that a circle can connote unity and solidarity. But I've never seen it in red. It's normally in green or blue. It doesn't work. It also looks, no disrespect, it looks like those disease coronavirus circle things that they used to show us. A little bit, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think the problem with this, so two things are going on here. This is really the new brand, except I find it suspicious that only a few months before the election, they don't have it more widely available for people running for election. Uh or it's it's a defensive posture, and and what they're doing now is they're they're tempting us to talk about it and see what happens. So it's a big giant focus group to get us talking about it. Or it's really some sort of misstep that they tested it in black and white, which maybe people understood the circle as unity, but in red, red is the wrong color. Red is always stop, danger, emergency. So in marketing, one's very careful using red. Uh, and, and so in this particular place, yes, it does say, if, if you think of the messages, stop Doug Ford, well, yeah, it might work. But that positions you in a less powerful position. And is that the way you want to position your political party? I don't think so. Let me ask you something else about this, too. And I, I'm, I'm intrigued to get your answer on this. We're saying, for people who haven't said it, it's red. Uh, look outside and, and, and say, oh, I saw five red cars. You probably saw five red cars that have five different shades of red. 
uh, because, yeah. you know, there's so many choices here. And I got to watch this because I'm not an expert in this. My wife keeps reminding me that there's blue red and there's yellow red and all this sort of stuff. And it's it's <laughs> the hue. It's red, but it's it's a different shade. This is a very dull red. Uh, the, the previous logo was something that jumped out at you. It was a bright red and, you know, it, it was there. Uh, this, it's, it's, uh, it just doesn't grab you because it just seems like a dull color. Right. Well, so actually, I think you know a lot about color. There's something called a positive red, and they used, a, that's not the actual name of it, but they were using a very positive, as you said, bright red. And, and again, now I don't want to judge this because right now this is leaked quotes, and I'm putting the leaks yeah. in, in, in quotes because many brands will do that. They will actually announce a new product that doesn't exist to get the competition excited. So it could be these are not the final colors of the logo. So what we're seeing is a copy of a copy. Somebody took a screenshot at a Zoom meeting, and that's why the colors look a little faded. But I agree with you. Like this, again, it just has a bit of a sick, I always call this the sort of sickly feel. It's not a positive color. And again, it's so thin. I encourage your listeners to go have a look at it. It's quite thin, and it doesn't feel contemporary. That's the other thing that I noticed. Again, I yes. like you did, to have a look at their previous logo, and I saw strength, vibrancy, a positive red color, and again, no connection to coronavirus when I looked at the previous one. So, Because this is the way we view colors and symbols and brands, and this is why people spend millions of dollars on these things, is that this kind of thing goes right into our unconscious brain and it gets linked quickly to what do we think of circles? What do we think of the color red? What's the combination of so much white space? Because the other thing I see here is a lot of empty space. And mm-hmm. and again, I don't have, we're not talking about political affiliations, but is that what you want to connotate is a lot of empty space in your political party? Well, are they saying there's lots of room for everyone? That's the positive spin. Or is the opposite? We don't have much to say except uh, let's get rid of Doug Ford. So that's why there's all this empty space. But that's why when you think of these brands, and so you said, for example, when I think of the McDonald's M, they spent millions of dollars and always actually have refreshed that M over time to keep it very contemporary. So your eye won't have caught the changes. You'll just say, right, that's McDonald's. I'll pull over there. Great, I'm done. It's familiar. I know it. I know what I'm going to get. But even they have made subtle changes so that you're feeling comforted by the current sim, that, that you recognize it, but it's contemporary to your eye. Again, this also has sort of a bit of an old-fashioned feel to it. Now, again, I may be keying off the color and the the use of white space because that's not a traditional or that's not what we do in contemporary uses of color and space. Um, But, uh, again, in fairness, if it's a screenshot, then it's tougher to tell what the reality and maybe they're going to stay with their red color. Can't imagine. You know what I'm thinking, though, as we're talking about this? Maybe maybe we're all being played here, Professor. Uh, You know, they're going to come out and say, no, 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 that was just a prototype. And they're going to listen to conversations like you and I are having right now and say, yeah, yeah, we have to tweak this, we have to tweak that. I mean, if if they're smart, they will. Uh, And and try to clean this up and say, okay, here's the the final product. But right, I, I got right. just a minute or so left, but let me ask you, because you just touched on what I think is a very important part of this. If you have an established brand and the Liberals Party, just like the Conservatives and the NDP, are established brands, is it dangerous to change that brand? Uh, yes, it can be. And, and, and using a lot well, I'm, I'm thinking of Coca-Cola years ago. 
absolutely right. And and they literally missed the information. In there was a couple of people in a focus group who actually said, "I don't like the fact you're doing this," and they ignored them. So you're right. Two things. Yes, this could be a trial trial balloon. There's another uh, thing that this might resemble and say, oh, shoot, this is absolutely wrong or somebody loved it, but they wanted to convince them that it's not the right choice. So, yes. So big, giant focus group. Second part is that, that, that changing this without lots of support and money. And the problem is they don't have much time to communicate because, remember, this has to go on the lawn signs yeah. and the toques and all the swag and all of that. And th- that takes time to create, and it's COVID, and everything takes twice the time. So I think you're I think you're onto something that in fact it's a trial balloon. Let's think about this because they can use this afterwards. They may not even be planning because remember all we see is this is a leak, and again in quotes. So you you caught it. I, I think there's some interesting things here, and that they even considered this though is a problem. It does suggest that there is sort of lack of direction or focus, and that the first page is let's fight Doug Ford. Uh, ugh, that's kind of like saying. We're better than Coca-Cola. And, and there are times when Coca-Cola won that battle because yeah. it just gave more advertising to the competitor. This, this fun conversation, and, and whether we uh, you know agree with liberals, conservatives, whether or not, subliminally, this stuff matters to us when we make choices. And that's why I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us today, Professor. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You betcha. Dr. Joanne McNeish, of course, Associate Professor of Marketing at Ryerson. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So you got this provincial election coming up the first week of June. Uh, issues that matter to you, uh, you can't just rely on political parties to do all the heavy lifting and say, yeah, this is what we're going to do, and here's our policy. I mean, if you're passionate about these things, you got to be active. And, and those groups and those people that are motivated in that way can make a difference. Uh, and climate's going to be a big deal here. I mean, you've got a government who's seeking re-election right now here in Ontario uh, that's talking about building super highways through a sensitive wetlands and, and greenbelt protected areas. Uh, they're talking about trying to cancel the, the the carbon tax on the gasoline, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of stuff going on here. So if you opposed to that, if you're concerned about that stuff going forward, what do you do? I'm going to bring Gideon Foreman into the conversation. Gideon is a climate change and transportation policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation. Uh, Gideon, so glad you could join us on the program. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. These are big issues here in Ontario. I know you guys have been following this. We've certainly talked about it on the program. Uh, and I think maybe pivotal issues in this, too. If somebody is passionate about this, how do you how do you mobilize a, a, a group like this and get them going uh, for and with the end date, of course, being that election itself and making sure that they I guess job one is to make sure they're going to vote. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're doing a lot of work to make sure that young people get out and vote. Right. It's good for democracy and young people care a lot about the environment. So it's really crucial bill that uh, they get out and cast a ballot on June 2nd. It's, you know, it's their future. I mean, everyone says that, but it's really true, right? The decisions we make now at the provincial level uh, are going to be impacting today's youth for decades. So it's crucial these folks get out and vote. Well, and not only is it going to have an impact on them, they're going to pay for it. <laughs> uh, well, because, exactly. they, you know, these are not one, one-offs. I mean, this is, this is whatever government we're going to have after June 2nd. Uh, there's got to be a commitment to, to some of these policies, especially environmental policies. Uh, you yes. know, seven, eight years ago, as you know, Gideon, if we were having this conversation, people would say, yeah, I got bigger issues, the economy. This is the, mm-hmm. In spite of everything that's going on with COVID and the, and the economic backlash that we've had because of that, 
I, you, I know you're not surprised, but the listeners may be surprised that environment still ranks as one of the top three concerns of voters. That's that's right. Well, it makes sense. I mean, look at what we saw last summer across Canada, these forest fires, right? I mean, yeah. the, the climate issue is real. It's here. It's now. It's not something happening somewhere else. It's here. It's really impacting us. And the science just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Earlier this month, as you know, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with a very, very strong warning, right? Things are very serious when it comes to the climate crisis. Now, it's important to remember that things aren't hopeless, Bill. I mean, we can still turn the ship around. The scientists are telling that, us that. We can still make changes that will ward off the worst, but we really need to act now. And that means electing a government in June that cares about the climate issue, right? And I, I know the other element to this, too, is we're obviously focusing on the election because that's a, a day of change, or could be anyway. Uh, but this is this is 365 day a year uh, job here. You can influence governments even if you know your team doesn't win. Uh, four years ago, I mean, this was a government that said this electronic vehicle thing is is baloney. We're taking all the charging stations out. Uh, we're canceling the uh, the incentives to buy these cars. And here we are, three and a half years later, and he seems to be all in on that, which which is good news. I don't know what the motivation is. I think I do. Uh, political, uh, because he can read the tea leaves here. But it's because there's been such a push from from voters and from society to say, this is what we want. This is where we need to go. And and sometimes governments are the last ones to react. But it, it, it it's a matter of, I guess, being consistent and being dedicated to the cause, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's right. You need to keep pushing and pushing. I mean, the, the good news is that Lots of Ontarians are on side for protecting the environment. Uh, Bill, you know, we, we uh, looked at some polling from ECOS uh, late 2021 on Ontarians' attitudes on these issues, and the numbers are astounding. I mean, the Ontarians want climate treated as an emergency. They want more protection for our forests and wildlife. They say the green belt is no place for a highway. So lots of common sense environmental things are embraced by the people of Ontario. That's a good thing. And I'm hoping they're going to act in accordance with those values when they vote on June 2nd. But you're right. It's not just about elections. It's about pressuring government to act on these issues every day. Exactly. Our listeners know this because I've talked about it before. My wife was uh, one of the original members of the Green Belt when it was uh, formed by the McGuinney government way back when. Uh, and served, I think, five, five and a half years on the on the council. And uh, it's amazing how attitudes change, because when it first started, of course, uh, Dr. Bob Elgy, the late Dr. Bob Elgy was the first chairman, wonderful man. Uh, there was a lot of pushback. Like, what are you doing? You can't build, you, you can't restrict that sort of thing. Now there's general acceptance. As a matter of fact, the mood of a lot of the people in the province right. now is we need to expand it. Exactly. Yeah, it's yes, change exactly. of attitude. And, and for a whole lot of good reasons. I mean, what did we learn from the pandemic, right? We, we need green spaces, you know, to begin with mental health value, right? There's all sorts of science now showing mental health value of spending time in nature, right? Especially in a crowded part of the world like Southern Ontario. So the green belt just checks so many boxes, protecting wildlife, protecting green spaces for our mental health, carbon storage, right? Those trees and those forests in the green belt are sucking in carbon and helping to protect us from the worst effects of the climate crisis. So from so many points of view, we need those green belts if we're going to continue to have a, a really livable community here in Southern Ontario. So for goodness sake, we need to be expanding our green belts. I think the good news, Bill, is that Ontarians get it. You know, ECOS found that among youth, for example, folks under 35, 76%, three quarters of young people say, Greenbelt's no place for a highway. 
So I think the good news is that a lot of people get it now and want to protect these spaces. Well, and uh, we're just about out of time, but the, the, the big takeaways here is you got to vote. Uh, you know, I, I know you guys and other environmental groups are doing uh, workshops in colleges and universities exactly. uh, to try to facilitate that whole process. And that's great. And they can Google the uh, David Suzuki Foundation and get the details about that. But you've got to register and you've got to vote. I mean, that's 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 if you want change, that's how you exact change. Absolutely. In a democracy, we're blessed to have the ability to vote. Not everyone has that in the world. And absolutely every eligible voter has to get out and vote on June 2nd. Gideon, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Take care. Gideon Foreman, who is a climate change and transportation policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.